Uh, This reading is taken from the book of James, chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you didn't commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thank you, Jane. Um, Sheila, my daughter, put the, um, the Bibles out. So you've got them on sheets or on Bibles. And if you want to check out elsewhere in James, that might be useful in the pews. I'm happy, page 1213 it is, for you to turn that up and have sight of, have the feel of the Bible in your hands as we look at it together. Um, but let's pray first and... Uh, ask for God's help. We thank you for that promise that we thought about already in the service, that if we lack wisdom, uh, you give generously and without fault to us when we ask for that wisdom. And we pray for your mercy upon us, Lord. We think of the, the risk of opening the word and not heeding it. Uh, forgive us for our selective listening to you. Help us to Weigh what you say, and as we've already sung, uh, write it into our hearts, we pray, by your Spirit. And make us truly wise, therefore we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I had to choose just one phrase from that reading, I think it would be the, uh, the memorable words, at the end of the reading, just those last four words, mercy triumphs over judgment. And perhaps that phrase is the one thing that God uh, wants somebody here to remember today. I don't know how you find yourself as you pitch up at church this morning or are watching, 
Um, but that is a, a, a sentence that deserves to be written in gold, isn't it? Mercy triumphs over judgment. And listen out for it as we get to the end of the passage a little later on as well, because it's wonderful news. In fact, it colors the whole passage, it seems to me, that we're looking at this morning. Just for the sake of those that want a bit of an overview of the ground that we've traveled through chapter 1, in chapter 1, James has been working through the subject of genuine faith. What does a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ look like? And I think it's worth saying we get a little insight about the letter from some of the details in the passage we have today, it probably is a general or a Catholic epistle. It's not just to one specific congregation. He says at the start to the 12 tribes, isn't he? It's it's spread out to the whole Israel of God, the church, as it was at the time of writing. But local conditions obviously fitted this need for a description of what it is to be a genuine believer. Uh, under the various pressures that the churches throughout the um, east of the uh, Mediterranean were facing at the time of writing. What does a genuine faith look like, the real deal? Well, in chapter 1 he said it's a faith which lasts, even if there are trials. Genuine faith will last and stick at it. Genuine faith, too, takes God's word seriously enough to obey it and to change how we live. He said that. And then just the tail end of the chapter, genuine faith, real religion. Uh, The last two verses of the chapter is to care for widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being unspotted by the world. Those, he says, are the sort of rituals or religion that please God to keep yourself unspotted from the world. You might say today, not selling out to the ideas of tolerance which are everywhere just because they're everywhere. We encounter them all the time. Don't sell out to them. Keep unspotted from the world. Uh, Or, as he puts it other ways, finding time for the lonely, the elderly, the disadvantaged. That is genuine faith, according to, to James. I had a very undistinguished career in my scientific studies as I was growing up, um, about the only experiment that I can remember doing, and I probably will relay it badly to you now, was um, growing crystals on a little string of cotton with a seed crystal in copper sulfate solution or whatever it was. And of course, you can get quite a nice external accretion on a little seed crystal in a strong solution, can't you? Then you put it in a dilute solution, all those beautiful extra crystals that had grown up around the first little bit uh, disappear again. External accretions. That's sort of, I think it would be called a physical change that happens. Um, external accretions spiritually in our lives that happen because we're in a strong solution with other Christians may look good, but appearances can be deceptive if we encounter something that uh, is a dilution of that in the world around us and quickly the external appearances can disappear, can't they? Reality becomes all too obvious in that situation that it's only been an external growth that happened. Now, many people are put off Christianity altogether by the sight of the falsely religious who look good um, 
but then actually when there's closer inspection, they lack the life. There's something of a sort of external accretion going on only. And that may be true for people we know of uh, in our orbit as a church. People have been put off Christianity by those they consider whose lives didn't match their lips. And for those of us here who would call ourselves Christians, it's still very beneficial to check ourselves against a letter like James to see where we might be nearer to the fake than we might easily admit. What have we got in chapter 2? I've got two headings for us. In genuine faith, here's the first heading, mercy must shape our relationships with others. Let me read um, from the start of the chapter again. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, we'll sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Which is a very compelling little scene. You almost want, whenever you're preaching on this passage, to have it sort of subtly staged. It would be too close to, um, if we managed to get the welcome team to do it badly, or something like that, a a similar scene. We'd we'd quite like to do that, wouldn't we? Just to sort of uh, live it out in, in the flesh. We mustn't be silly about it. There is a right respect which the Bible says we should accord to some people. So if the queen were to rock up at church, it wouldn't be wrong to give her respect. In fact, the Bible elsewhere commands that. Or more likely, respecting the elderly or our parents. It is absolutely right to do it. But that's not the situation he has in view here. Here, somebody well-off gets respect... And somebody who has nothing to give, as we would think, gets nothing from us. And what's happening, says James, is, well, if we behave that way, we are becoming judges with evil thoughts. And we're flatly at odds with the character of God. He implies that that in the first verse of the chapter, just by calling Jesus Christ our glorious Lord. He's the Lord of glory who didn't keep us at arm's length, at a distance. He actually entered our world. He came right down to our level. The Lord of glory did that for you, for me. He absolutely didn't have to. He did that. So how could we ever write people off? The Lord of glory didn't write us off. Same idea in verse 5 as well. Uh, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? God has chosen Christians who maybe aren't normally respected and valued and well-off in the world's eyes, particularly, but he's given us riches untold. We are spiritual millionaires. We have a kingdom. You might not know that to look at us this morning particularly, but we have. How's he done it? Well, simply because God in his mercy gave spiritual wealth to us. We've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. The irony is that the people that 
they were making such a fuss of in James's day were the ones that were treating the Christians really badly. They were dragging them off to court. And uh, just like Saul was told by Jesus, you're persecuting me, the rich were actually, says James, insulting Jesus. So why would the Christians dishonor the poor and make a fuss of the rich? That is completely out of step with how their relationship with God should be leading us to treat others. He's a God of mercy with a heart for the poor, including those poor Christians in James's day. Now, I don't think he's saying that God only ever has a heart for the poor. Sometimes people skew this passage in that direction. There are similar verses in 1 Corinthians where Paul reminds the church there that not many wise or wealthy or nobles had been chosen. And that was a, a passage much loved as somebody that uh, Edward Keane has mentioned in a sermon not long ago, the Countess of Huntingdon. In the 18th century, she was um, uh, a wealthy benefactor of the church. Uh, wise, wealthy, and noble would have fitted her. And she used to point to that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and say that she had been saved by an M. Otherwise, the verses said not many wise or wealthy or noble. It didn't say not any. Just that little letter M had made all the difference for her, she said. She'd been saved. God does graciously save wealthy, wise, respectable people, but not because they're somehow more special. Far from it. It's just because he is merciful. Anyway, that means that amongst genuine believers, those with a real relationship with that kind of God, mercy not merit, or anything else we could add, must shape all our relationships. And I think that's a, a lesson for us today. Actually, probably more than we easily admit in this whole area of um, monetary rankings amongst ourselves, we think wealth equals worth a lot more than we're disposed to admit and it's probably true in Christian circles just as much as elsewhere. Why is it that since the time of Wesley, um, the working classes in this country have been largely untouched by the church? Could it be that it was because churches didn't reflect, don't reflect, the mercy of God properly? We've run ourselves as middle-class clubs, which is a tragedy. And I guess there'll be other applications of this teaching today. Um, I think that uh, the last couple of years and the situation we face with COVID have given us a multiple, uh, a raft of areas where we can easily put people into first and second classes amongst ourselves and fall out with each other and discriminate against each other if we were minded to do that. But... Those sorts of discriminations where we say this group are worthy and this group are not worthy. This group are worthy of my affection and my love and my uh, kindness. This group are not. Sit here. I'm not interested in you. That sort of discrimination is not... He's not looking for worthy people, is he? He didn't look around Shelford this morning and think, who are the worthiest people that I can scoop up together and gather uh, in church or online. Uh, let's call them together 
in churches so I can deal with them in a special class today. He calls the undeserving here. And every sense that you and I have that we are deserving takes us further from the grace of God. So first heading, in genuine faith, mercy must shape our relationships with others. On to a second heading, in genuine faith, mercy is what we all need for our own disobedience. We'll see how that hangs together, therefore, in the rest of the passage. Verse 8 is how a Christian is to treat everyone else, rich and poor alike, the likable, the unlikable, the respectable, the disreputable. Love your neighbor as yourself. So with my neighbor, their attractiveness or lovableness is irrelevant. I am to love as God loves. And that is the principle of mercy again. Favoritism is quite different. He says, verse 9, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. See, to discriminate, to show favoritism, that's me deciding who I will love and who I won't. Whatever basis I make that decision on, it's me that's doing the deciding. And that means that I'm not allowing God to decide. And so I am a transgressor of God's law. It's quite complicated, verses 10 and 11, but this is how he goes on. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And he could have gone for any or a selection of commandments here. This is how he puts it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. People don't stand up in court, in earthly courts, when convicted of murder and say, but Your Honor, I haven't committed adultery, so I should be allowed off. That would be ridiculous. We play the same game with God all the time, however. Whenever we arrange sins into a list, a pecking order, so that we can congratulate ourselves for not committing what we regard as the more serious sins and then excuse ourselves by that from indulging in less serious ones, actually, in that situation, whenever we do that, we take from God his right to decide the nature of good and evil. Many of us might say of something we know to be wrong, well, it's not very serious. And when we do that, we've decided that we'll be the one that decides. Could be whatever it might be. Failure to get on well with a parent or a parent-in-law. Um, that slight dishonesty over an expense claim or a tax return. Uh, Two-timing relationship. A covetous attitude to our property. Uh, this or that sexual indulgence. Whatever it might be. We said, oh, that's not serious. There's a, a nice thing that's happened in the North Building. I don't know if you've been out there recently, but after a long while, that window in the North Building has been repaired. Um, thank you to Neil Wade and the team that have done that. I don't know, it's happened before, actually, know, a few more years ago now, or maybe it was the North Extension that went this time. Sometimes when the churchyard gets mowed, a stone gets flicked up, and it shatters one of the windows. Um, I'm pretty sure that the north building one, it was just a tiny little hole that got pinged into the window at one point. And because the gardener 
on his uh, tractor mower, had no idea what had happened because he was driving off in the other direction. Just a tiny little chip out of the glass when he left. Then later on, the whole big pane is in a million crazy paving fragments. One stone at one point, and then the whole piece of glass is wrecked. It is like that with God's law. This is the point he's making. So the Ten Commandments aren't questions in an exam paper, attempt any four of ten. No, they are the character of God. A commandment's not just a text, it is someone speaking to us. And to break just one is to disobey him. We try and dodge some commands. We're actually trying to dodge God. And the Christian life, the genuine Christian life, is supposed to be all about coming face to face with God, being in relationship with him. When we want to choose who we will love and who we won't, discriminating, favoritism, we're dodging the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. And de facto, we are attempting to avoid facing God because it's his law. So what James has done in that paragraph, as I said, it's slightly complicated. I think this is the, the force of where he's going. What he's done is to show us that what we might want to regard as just being a little bit snobbish so, in their case, it's a little local difficulty with a few fellow human beings. That is actually, says James, an indication of the nature of my relationship with God being wrong. My relationships with other people can't be disengaged from my relationship with God. And I've got to decide whether I will deal with them on the basis of the world's values. Remember, I'm meant to be unspotted from the world, will I deal with people on the basis of the world's values that says these people are lovely, these aren't, these people are important and worthy, these aren't, or on the basis of God's values? And verses 12 to 13, the last little bit of the chapter, present that stark alternative. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If I had um, access to my overhead projector slides, I'd have tried to dredge up that nice picture of um, the Sea of Galilee and the Red Sea, I'm sorry, the Dead Sea, and tell you about the difference between the two, one with an inflow and an outflow, the other with an inflow and no outflow, the Dead Sea. But mercy is something which flows. It's not a, a reservoir, but a river, if I can put it like that. Somebody couldn't give you a river and you then just stop it flowing. That would cease to be a river. It would become a lake, a reservoir. And mercy has got to be like that. It's got to flow. When God gives to us, it comes to us like a stream, like a river flowing onwards. If we try and stop it and try and receive mercy but not give mercy, actually means we can't receive it properly. It turns into something else. We can't receive it in that way. Receiving mercy and showing mercy, dispensing it onwards, go together. You can't damn the river of God's mercy. And if we will not be a channel of mercy to others, 
it indicates we've not enjoyed it from God ourselves and that we will not enjoy it in the future on the day of judgment. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who hasn't been merciful. But good news ending, mercy triumphs over judgment. That is such a wonderful note to end on. For, I guess as we all admit we are, a bunch of lawbreakers. That may be the one thing, that last sentence of the reading, that God wants to leave um, with leave ringing in our ears as we go from here. Judgment without mercy is all that we all deserve because we're lawbreakers. Mercy is what we all need because of our disobedience. And we know that Jesus Christ was willing to serve the full penalty of the law for us when he died on the cross. And he's able by his spirit to write that law into our hearts and into our lives so that it becomes, this lovely phrase, a law of freedom for us and potentially for every life that we touch. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I've got a slightly peculiar end to the sermon uh, arising, this may be wrong, I don't know whether to do this or not, arising out of a letter that appeared in the porch as I came to open up the church this morning. And I was immediately struck by the uh, address it said to vicar with love vicarage all saints church etc so i open it up and it's from somebody i don't know if anybody here knows a jonathan rayner from a peterborough postcode not sure who it's from an anonymous note to the vicar or largely anonymous tune of my god how wonderful thou art we could sing it but i i won't do that to david and the rest of you unannounced he just written out a, a poem that I think is just a, an opportunity for us to, as I read it out, uh, delight in God's mercy to us again, the mercy that we're to pass on. My Jesus, he writes, wash me white as snow, my sins forgiven and gone, and in your strength for you I go, as Jesus leads me on. I love you, Jesus, for your love, because you first loved me. You bring me safe to heaven above through death at Calvary. There on your cross for me you died to take my sins away. Now you're risen and glorified, your holy word does say. A greater love than yours, dear Lord, we cannot ever know. And your true love is in us stored for us to go and show. Amen. Jonathan Rayner. I'm grateful to him for that little challenge to show that love in our relationships. And I don't know whether it was right to read that out, but I thought it was worth sharing with you. David.